Welcome back to the Architecture Firm Marketing Podcast, a show where I speak to architects who have found success in their business, marketing, and communications, as well as consultants and experts who will share their unique tips and strategies to help you attract your ideal clients. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, marketing consultant for architects. And if you'd benefit from professional advice and guidance on your marketing, you can head to vanityprojects.com to check out my coaching services and book in a free 30-minute consultation to discuss your situation. Today's episode is sponsored by Bowbird, and I'd like to thank Bowbird for jumping on board and supporting the show. I've known Nick and Ben, the founders, for years and seen their platform grow from this small startup in Melbourne to now being all over the world with reach into China, the UK, Europe, and the US. If you've seen other architects and interior designers getting lots of media coverage all over the place and wondered, hey, how do they do that? There's a good chance they're using Bowbird, and that's because many of the best publications in the world source their content through Bowbird, like Wallpaper, Frame, Arc Daily, and many more. It's very easy to use as well. So if you've ever had a project professionally photographed, then you've got everything you need to get started. You just upload your project and start submitting it to your favorite magazines, newspapers, and websites. So if you'd like to find out more, I have a previous episode of the podcast with the co-founder, Ben Morgan, titled Figuring Out the Architectural Media. It's episode 12. Or if you just want to use Bowbird and try it out for yourself, then head over to bowerbird.io. Joining me on the show today is Ryan Willard from Business of Architecture UK, an organization dedicated to teaching architects creative client acquisition and business development strategies. Ryan is also the host of the Business of Architecture UK podcast, where he interviews successful UK-based architects on the secrets for running profitable and impactful architectural practices. In this episode, we discussed why it's essential to develop a positive mindset around marketing and sales and why viewing marketing as an extension of your design process will help you to enjoy it more and make it easier to prioritize in your busy schedule. We looked at why it's a good idea to develop your personal brand as an architect and how Ryan would approach it if he was starting from scratch today. And finally, we discussed the challenges architects face when we get too busy and what you can focus on today to prevent these issues from overwhelming your firm in the months ahead. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ryan Willard from Business of Architecture UK. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, man. My absolute pleasure, Dave. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. I guess to start things off, it would be really interesting to get maybe a little bit of uh, background. We have a lot of Australian listeners to the podcast. You're obviously really well known in the UK and amongst our yep. UK audience, but for the Australians, maybe a really brief overview of your history and getting involved in business of architecture and the podcast. And yeah, however you want to introduce yourself, man. Sure. Brilliant. So I'm by training an architect and studied in the UK. I've worked at places like Grimshaw and the Richard Rogers practice, Roger Sturt Carbon Partners. So big practice in the UK. Maybe about 10 years ago, I set up my own architecture practice, which I still operate. And in 2015 or so, I began podcasting and interviewing other architects about their businesses and trying to understand how they work. How do they win work? How do they build and develop systems? How do they deal with money and finance inside of their companies? And this was a process that was really driven out of my own frustration of running an architecture practice and all of the emotional turmoil that you go through in your early 30s of becoming qualified as an architect, being released to run wild into the profession, and then realizing, what on earth is this? What has happened? This is so wildly different from anything I was expecting at university. And then kind of you think the solution might be to run your own practice or run your own business. So you have that kind of entrepreneurial seizure and you, you leap off into running your own company and then realize that there's an enormous amount of skills that you don't have to run a business. And that process for me was very painful in the very 
beginning of it and it was just like my goodness what am I missing what's going on here so that led me to working with my own business consultant I mean right in the very early days like within a year of, of beginning practice I'd hired a business consultant I'd joined all these networking groups and just began this incredible journey of falling in love with everything business related to do with architecture and entrepreneurship and speaking to as many people and part of that process I was like well I should really start kind of documenting what I'm learning here and who I'm talking with and kind of figured that if I recorded it and made it into a podcast and that would be quite useful and it would probably help me get access to more interesting people as well and it was about that point where I reached out to Enoch who had been running the Business of Architecture uh, podcast in the US for a few years I sent him a message and said, hey, if I interview some people, can I stick them onto your podcast platform? To which he was like, fantastic, that would be an amazing idea, let's do it. And so I began by kind of contributing to, to that platform. And then a few years later, I was getting a bit obsessed with like how many you know podcasts I was doing. And Enoch and I kind of decided, well, why don't we launch a, a podcast specifically for the business of architecture in the UK? So... That was about 2018. We started having a load of live events where I was kind of you know, chairing panel discussions with well-known architects here. Again, all themes around marketing, how to recession-proof a business, the kind of sales and operations that are needed, the, the seven threats to an architecture practice, I think was one of the names of the events. And, and this started to create a real buzz around it. And over time, that podcast kind of grew into its own business operations and a few years ago Enoch and I kind of joined forces more became more involved more collaborative and now we run the business of architecture which is its own business consulting agency where we work with architecture practices to help them develop business systems help them get out of overwhelm stop being the bottleneck in their practices, think about legacy and the future and run what's called the smart practice method, which can kind of put all these fundamental systems into an architecture practice to help it become profitable and more enjoyable. That's really interesting. Going back to your practice in those earlier years, I suppose, yeah. you were seeking help pretty early on and realizing that you had those limitations and gaps in your knowledge. Is there a particular area of business that you felt you struggled with the most at the beginning and maybe when at that point when you started reaching out and getting help or getting coaching or consulting? I, I, it's interesting because at the time it was all about fees and I couldn't fathom how I could have just gone through this extensive training for the best part of a decade and then being employed and that there was a complaint there about what I was getting paid comparatively to say other friends in different professions or people who had done who had spent far less time in university or even compared to friends who didn't have a degree and had just been working and were earning fantastic salaries and being like god this is that's tough and so setting up my own business was was partly you know, to try and find a a way of enjoying architecture again and to kind of find where my what am i supposed to be doing but it was also driven by money it was like there's got to be a better way of of earning cash here and making money out of an architecture practice so fees was the first sort of real pain point if you like and handling of money and and at the time it was quite an interesting process because i look back on it now and the thing that was missing was the business mindset which you don't ever think is really something that's missing but it was i was massively wired in the wrong way and my whole approach to architecture practice was about me right it wasn't about service it wasn't about finding a niche market and and working with clients and understanding what their problems are and what's fundamental and how they're thinking and what they are they're looking for it was very much about my architectural ideas and ambitions and how can I express that and wanting to create some sort of academic research studio that was driven by those ideas at the time i didn't think that was a problem but when i look back on it now and that was the first thing i did with my with my business mentor was kind of rewiring that and also helping actually identify what some of my 
core competencies and, and strengths were, which one of the things I loved doing is talking to people. And I can't believe in 10 years of my architecture education, it never clicked with me that you can make a living talking to people. I'd done sales jobs during my education. I lived in Sydney for in my year out and was a, a charity advocate for the Cancer Council. One of these guys that stands on the streets yeah. and you wave people down and get them into a conversation and get them to hand over their credit card details for you and they sign up for a $20 a month donation or whatever it was. And people were pretty rough. They would swear at you and shout all sorts of mean things or whatever. But I remember on my first day on that job, I was going up to people, interacting with them, talking, waving them down, doing all the stuff that they teach you in the day and a half of training that you get before they release you into the streets. And it was pretty hard going. But at the end of the day, something clicked and somebody registered and then I was hooked. And that was when I started getting really interested in marketing and sales, but didn't really, it didn't really clock in my head that this was something that I could ever use in architecture. So when I started working with the business mentor, a lot of these experiences from working, doing that job, and I used to be in a band and we used to put on, we used to put on music nights in London and we would promote them and market them and have to fill up a whole room with a with hundred people or whatever to come and see the band. And we would curate other bands coming in and basically being a promoter. And again, things like that was actually developing a whole sort of skill set around communication that I hadn't really logically put to, this is what you can do in your own architecture practice. So Working with a business mentor was was really interested in just resetting the mindset about number one, finding problems that you can solve with your skill sets. That's number one, what you should be doing. It's not solely about me wanting to express an artist's vision. There is space for that. And that is also important to be doing, but it's not the, the main thing. So that became this journey of personal discovery and underpinned a lot of the research I suppose I was doing and kind of curating and information that I was kind of um, putting together from talking to all these architects, which is a lot of this experience has, has led into what we do now in the smart practice at Business of Architecture. And when you're working with that consultant, was it put to you more as a, if you don't change your mindset, you're heading towards a very dark and disastrous experience as an architect? So was it the stick or was it kind of more the carrot hey, you could have a more positive experience in business, that you could be thriving more. What motivated you or helped you to make that switch? So that's an interesting one. There was a lot of personal development work that I did with the with Johan, the, my, my business mentor, who I still work with today, that just got me interested in people and identifying, again, these kind of skill sets, learning to be interested in somebody else. That was the shift of the mindset, if you like. And, and there also, I suppose it was driven by wanting to create a career that fit. That's the main thing, really, that the whole, the pain that I had around it was, was trying to find a career that fit. And so working with a business mentor was really shifting and massaging that mindset of, okay, well, how do you develop a career that actually fits you like a, a glove? Where, where are your own belief systems getting in the way of that fit and yes the kind of if you don't do this then it's going to continue being not that nice and and I was also painfully aware of looking around in the rest of the architecture industry and seeing a lot of other people whose jobs I didn't want to have and a lot of other practices where I was like that doesn't appeal to me working huge hours every single night and then kind of constantly being on this level of financial discomfort if you like yeah so yeah i mean money money was a big money was a big mindset shift as well it was like being comfortable with wanting to make money enjoying it like being quite happy to talk about it so yeah i'm picking all of this stuff and um making a career that that fits and kind of going deep into the sort of underpinning mindsets that are needed for running a business, if you like. Yeah. I love watching it happen with clients that I'm working with that are also then working with 
business coaches or business consultants and developing a positive mindset around business as a whole. And they start becoming so much more uh, successful in their marketing as well because of Mm -hmm. that overall shift. And sometimes I notice that they just develop more of a positive mindset towards things like money, towards their business. The idea of being successful in business becomes more attractive to them. It starts Mm -hmm. to not be so dominated by just one form of success. Absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like you started to become more kind of in touch with what are you as a business person and an architect, your own identity and your own values and not just what am I supposed to act like or believe because I'm an architect. Yeah, you nailed it. You nailed it. It it very much about redefining what does success mean for me or for, for you as an individual and recognizing that you come out of architecture school with a very stiff structure of what success looks like in the profession of and it's all based around design and there's this this kind of unyielding reverence to design which many architects kind of bow down to and that becomes the be all and end all and then it's acknowledgement in the profession and that's great and again there is a space for that but it can be at the expense of a lot of other things and that's not the path for everybody either. And kind of learning to redefine what does success look like? And money is part of that. And a lifestyle is a part of that. And doing creative, fulfilling, enjoyable work is part of that. Something that we both do because we have these podcasts is that we interview successful practices. And what I love is finding out that behind the scenes, they're actually quite passionate about business and quite passionate Mm -hmm. about marketing and they're quite good at it. And because there's this perception that developing skills in business and marketing and sales is something that crappy architects have to do. And our heroes don't do any of that sort of stuff. But we both speak to them and we know that the most successful firms are the ones doing the most. I I, I mean, this has been one of the most enjoyable things for me is is listening to some of my favorite designers like like um, Tom Kundig, Olsen Kundig, absolutely love their practice. And I've interviewed Tom a couple of times and he's really passionate about business. And he was so excited to talk about the business aspect and building brand and finance and the importance of, you know, in the early years of their practice, when the practice was on a knife edge kind of financially, and it was kind of about to implode on in on itself. And there was a pretty rough seven years of them getting the business and turning it around and fighting with it. It tells this wonderful story of how they used that time to number one, develop their design philosophy and their design manifesto, if you like, as, a, as an approach to architecture, but also just to build up that financial foundation, right? So they knew that if they had a financial foundation, if they had like a year's worth of reserves set aside in the bank, if they had all their debts cleared, that they would be able to really let loose and let rip when the right design project finds them or when they find the right design project, that they can they can take more of those sorts of risks. A lot of the big practices that I've spoken to talk about the, the early days and they look back, it's some sort of process like that, that they were like, we know what we've got to get a handle on the business. We've got to get an understanding of what marketing is. We've got to be proactively going out there and winning work and learning the art of winning work. And the other thing is, is that a lot of people, a lot of these practices, their clients are super successful business people in the first place. So you've got to learn the language of business to be able to attract the successful clients that you want to be working with in the first place, because a lot of these people are some of the most entrepreneurially literate people on the planet. So you want to be able to understand how to speak their language. You want to be able to understand what their pains are, what their problems are, and how that you can use your design skills to be an investment or a solution to whatever it is that they're dealing with. So yeah, that's a, a really enlightening and and wonderful thing to hear about how they approach business and in marketing specifically i still interview a lot of architects who deny that they market and deny that they do sales i always remember interviewing a practice and i asked them so how do you go about marketing and they're like oh, we don't do marketing we just do we just do good work we just kind of focus on doing the quote that's great yes I understand that. And they were like, well, we, we don't actively do any marketing or you know, any kind of um, promotional work. The interview stopped and the practice owner pulls out this beautiful newspaper. Oh, check out our newspaper. We've documented all the different types of, of, of housing in the local area. And the whole team has been going out on the streets and distributing these newsletters. And I was like, 
okay, let's restart the podcast and let's talk about this. This is great content marketing, essentially. So, but it was what was interesting. What for for a lot of architects, I found is that they might not necessarily call it marketing. If you can disguise it, or they've disguised it as an extension of their design process, then fantastic. Or it's a conversation, or it's education. Right, it's educating people about architecture. Then it's less of an offense, an offensive thing. I think that marketing and sales. I mean, both of us, we adore marketing. I love it. It's like just the most fascinating part of business, where creativity meets psychology meets performance, and same with the the conversational sales aspect of it. There's this wonderful mix of psychology and and art and theater and and just developing relationships and people and really fascinating thing but there is still that exists a a suspicion in architecture around marketing and sales and and like you say that this crazy perception that I shouldn't have to do this and if I'm doing it, it it's an admission that I'm rubbish or something's <laughs> not working or only lesser architects market themselves and I don't, I'm not exactly sure where that comes from but I have some suspicions but it's unhelpful it's an unhelpful mindset and then when I talk to the super su- successful practices or practices that have grown very quickly in a short period of time they've always invested in marketing they've always hired consultants they've always reached out and they've just begun that that process of understanding what it's what it's all about. I think nowadays, certainly with the younger generation, it's a it's quite different, and people are more much more interested in business and entrepreneurship. I think the whole YouTube generation, businesses being an influencer, and the YouTubers, and the amount of business education that is just plastered all over the internet, has really been beneficial for a lot of young architects and they know that their university education is incomplete and they're a little bit more wary of the the kind of aversion to business that perhaps previous generations would have inherited through through education and are a lot more accepting interested fascinated and want to learn about development and uh, and sales processes and business systems and are kind of excited to understand that and integrate it into their own practice so they can see it as a means for for developing a career that's fulfilling and has a level of autonomy and freedom to it and i think for younger practices there's less hesitation or i think the culture is a little bit more open to going off and working with a consultant and finding out where you need help i suppose things like this the podcasts as well there's probably a, a certain generation that listen to podcasts as well yeah, I think we tend to be hitting one type of audience in particular with the podcast. <laughs> you have to mix it up in in our own marketing to make sure that we're reaching everybody. But yeah, it it is interesting. I find that on the marketing side, I see that sort of five, six person practice is also the sort of the optimum point, particularly once they've actually gotten some work finished and built. And that's when a whole yeah. bunch of different opportunities start to open up to them from mm-hmm. a marketing standpoint. Prior to that, it feels like you're just laying the groundwork in anticipation of what's to come. And there's definitely so much value to that, but it really does take patience and a willingness to wait for things to come to fruition. But yep. do you also find that in those early stages, the process can be a little bit more challenging, but there's still plenty to do with a newly established business in that first yeah, couple that, of years? I mean- yeah, there's there's still plenty to do. There's there's certainly like getting a grasp on sales and learning a sales process and learning to prospect and laying the foundation of that mindset shift, if you like, and kind of moving away from how we've always approached selling at university, which is the which is kind of the portfolio format and me look at me type of thing. Like unpicking that and turning that around is is really valuable at the very beginning, and also setting up a foundation of business systems, right? So getting a a grasp over your accounts and setting profit targets and understanding what profit is and that it doesn't have to be just a reaction at the end of the year when your accountant says, okay, you've made X amount of profit and you're like, hurrah, where is it? Let me have it. And it's like, well, actually it's not there anymore. It's already been spent and it's not in the bank account. And (laughs) it's just now paper. It's kind of like a, it's paper profit, if you like. Um, but actually getting a handle and a grasp over those things and getting strategic over where you want your business to go. That's the other thing, which is really valuable at the very beginning. And so rather than just being kind of in a panicked, let me take on everything or anything, 
which is you know, as part and parcel of the growth of the growth phase, but getting strategic over that and saying, okay, we're only going to do this for a few months or a few years until we've got X amount of revenue built up. And then we're going to take this direction and we're going to go here and we can start laying the the foundations of which pathway we're going to be going down and doing that. Yeah, that makes sense. Something that a lot of architects I'm working with have been dealing with recently is it's become quite volatile over the last couple of years with with COVID where you tend to get these quiet months and you get these very busy months. And recently, it's probably been more on the busy side where Mm -hmm. there's suddenly been a big influx of work that's happened almost so quickly that it's taken some practices quite uh, by surprise. And the result of that is that everything just becomes complete and utter chaos <laughs> in their practice. All of a sudden, they need to hire four more people within the space of a month. They're in reactive mode. They're just reacting mm-hmm. to everything that's happening. They email me and say they need to take a break from marketing for three to four months because they're just so <laughs> inundated. And that can happen. And I suppose in terms of being in the shoes of before that tsunami wave hits of, wow, we actually just got a bunch of inquiries. We maybe took too many of them on. We maybe didn't have our fees high enough. We let too many things happen at once. I mean, what are some strategies around managing that, minimizing that, (laughs) avoiding that becoming a complete debacle? Mm -hmm. Does it begin in the sort of the planning stage? I'm curious to hear how you guys would approach that. Yeah, there is. And a lot of, a lot of, I mean, we've seen that a lot in our with our clients and the practices that we've engaged with. That particularly over COVID, there's been this massive boom. People have taken on loads of work, and then it just becomes like I'm slammed. Where there's too much stuff going on, we're crazy. Then there becomes this apprehension over marketing, as if if you do more marketing now, then suddenly you're going to have more work, and it'll be even more crazy. And it doesn't quite work like that. And when you've got loads of work on, that's the time to be laying the seeds, doing marketing and being strategic about ensuring that you're getting the right types of projects when you've got cash coming in. You don't want to be marketing when you don't have any work. That's what happens. People end up only doing marketing when the pipeline is empty and you're on the back foot, which is, again, another reaction. And we don't want to be doing that. But one concept I'll always talk about in business is this idea of as a CEO, as the managing director or managing partner or the operator of a business and the owner of a business, your role really is about altitude. Okay, So as a CEO or the managing director, you have a 100-foot view of your business. You need to be able to see all the different components parts of it. You need to be able to see what systems are working. You need to be able to see how marketing interacts with the sales teams and the processes, how HR interacts with all of that, how your hiring processes work, how your production processes work, how your administration and finance and how all these different systems and pieces work. So you need to have this kind of altitude you know, like imagine if you're in a hot air balloon and you're kind of going up and you can see all the different pieces interacting with each other. You need to see where that's going. And then there's a higher level of altitude, which is maybe the owner role and some of the strategic and vision work of the CEO or managing partner role, where you can now see to the horizon and you can see a direction where you want to go. And you can see that, okay, we want to fly over there, but you know, there's actually a few obstacles or there's dangerous clouds coming in that look like they're going to be turbulent. So we need to avoid that, right? So that altitude and that ability to start thinking long-term and thinking strategically, there's, a, there's an intent, intellectual logic because people will go, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. But there's a, an emotional reality to it where in the kind of everyday operations of a business, your clients and team members are going to be screaming much louder at you than the view over there. And sometimes there's this kind of pull where a a business owner would be like, yeah, but we need to be doing billable hours. We need to be doing billable hours. So the next part of the planning and the vision is to embed a fierce discipline around it where it becomes immovable. And we often tell our clients that even though it's not billable hours, it's your most high value activity in the business because the strategic changes and directions and the research that you do in identifying where a new market is and then developing marketing plans and and sales strategies around how you're going to get there, that work in the long term, these hours that you put in 
is not going to pay you hundreds of dollars. It's going to pay you tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and in some case, millions. It's enormously high value work. It's just that you don't have a deadline around it. Nobody's screaming at you to get it complete. And a lot of times, it's a new skill that you're learning. So it feels a mess. It feels uncomfortable. It feels like I'm wasting time because you're going through a learning process. And then at the same time, you've got a client delivery deadline on, on Friday and then some shit's gone down and on site with the form work and the contractor is phoning you, right? So there's that immediate firefighting, which is making a lot of noise versus this high level strategic work, which absolutely needs to be done. Now, once that strategic work is done and is, and is being protected, it has a very powerful impact on the sorts of work that you're saying yes to. And it begins to readdress the mindset of like, I need to take everything on. I'm just going to say yes to everything. And you become much more interested. And you know what? I only need a handful of the right sorts of clients. And actually, a big part of the strategy that emerges is a transition phase to being to start saying no to the wrong sorts of clients and then putting in proactive work to go after the clients that are going to be bigger projects, they're going to pay better. As you develop and refine your marketing and sales skills, fees, higher fees naturally follow as a product of that. As your mindset shifts, you get more comfortable charging higher fees. You understand why you're doing it. You start identifying the, uh, the kind of trips that you get yourself into by agreeing to stuff which is outside of your, your scope of work or being the the yes man where you, you know you're always frightened of saying no or upsetting the client because that's that strategic vision has started to lay the path of okay we're going to go over here this is what i want to do those are the sorts of clients i'm after there's no point me doing these sort of little kitchen extensions if i want to be building airports or those kitchen extensions they've got a limit to them They've got a cap around them. I'm only going to be doing them for the first three months because we need a bit of cash flow coming in. And then from October, we're not taking any more of those kitchen extension projects on and we'll start laying the seeds to uh, building building a pathway towards airport infrastructure. I mean, that's a bit of an extreme example. but <laughs> Yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm just trying to, to, illust- to illustrate the, the point. So yeah. that, that strategic work, the vision work, combined with, okay, I need to learn more about sales and marketing and get wrapped up into that process, that really defends against the reaction of suddenly taking on a load of work that's not the right fit, right? And if that does happen, and it does, the clients do you know, find it difficult to say no and loads of work suddenly uh, appears. Things like hiring is interesting because hiring is always is a reaction, as opposed to that was going to be my next question i feel like architects they feel like they can hire their way out of every poor choice when it comes to work they take on they overcommit to too much work or the wrong type of work and then they just seem to feel like i will just hire somebody and that's going to ease the pressure then i'm going to have more time and i just never see it happening i don't think i've ever seen an uh a client actually ease the pressure i always see it and go i wish you just hadn't taken that project on why did you need to do that it's not even a good one and you're telling me you're not even going to be able to photograph it at the end so we're not going to be able to even market it what the, what was the point of that the, the poor choice that comes from a lack of vision and planning and some kind of overarching strategy of where the business wants to be going you've got to live with that choice now in architecture it's a big one because you've got to live with a project for sometimes two three years right and every time you say yes you've said no to a thousand other things when you say yes to a project that's not a fit, you've now got to live with that project for however many years it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take. Now you're going to be in reaction. So if you do hire staff, you're just going to be putting them onto a project that's not a fit. Great. Well done. Yeah. And that project, if, if they're really not a fit, that's going to be draining all your resources. You're not going to be interested in doing marketing. And so what happens with at the end of that project? Well, that client might refer you to another project that's not a fit. Well done. Yeah. Hurrah. It- now this is the perpetuating cycle of this kind of stuff. So that altitude, so key, so important. 
If you like what you're hearing so far, please make sure to share this episode with colleagues you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave me a five-star review on the Apple Podcast or Spotify app? Every review makes it easier for people to find the show and hear what my amazing guests have to say. I also love hearing your questions and I'm planning more listener Q&A episodes. So please send your questions in to questions at vanityprojects.com and I'll answer them on the show. You definitely feel a lot more comfortable when you take on that extra work because extra work, more revenue, it always feels safer and we all experience Mm -hmm. it. Uh, and then we all live to regret it. <laughs> I personally go through it too. Yep. It's an ongoing battle. I'm always very envious of people that have just really mastered that discipline of just mm-hmm. controlling themselves. And we're all working on getting towards it, but some architects are, are fully out of control. And I see it at being a bit of a root problem that that causes a lot of other issues further down the line that you've spoken about. But but it is quite tricky to go, I'm just going to, I'm going to turn down that project or I'm going to pass on it. And I'm just going to uncomfortably sit here waiting slightly less work mm-hmm. than I feel happy with uh, until that perfect thing that was in my strategic view comes into the foreground and I, and then I well, can do that. It- That's hard. Well, it's it becomes hard if there isn't a proactive approach to learning and mastering marketing. Because then if it's just about waiting, then that's a death trap. Yeah. Right. And so a lot of and that's a lot of the reason why people will just react and take on work is because of a lack of confidence around sales and marketing. Yeah. Right. Those things either appear a mystery or there's a mindset around them which is like, I shouldn't have to do this. If I'm putting myself out there, I, I don't want to be needy, I don't want to be salesy, all this kind of the head gremlins, if you like, that kind of stop people from being in action around marketing. So if that stuff is going on, that's why the mindset around marketing and sales is so fascinating. Because if it's kind of percolating and bouncing around, then you're going to be very unenthused about doing marketing and seek the comfort of reactionary work and just hope. And hope can be comfortable Hope can be like, I hope this project works out. Hopefully it will lead to more. Hopefully if we do really good work on here, they're going to be introducing us to their friends and hopefully we'll get um, better projects as a result. But that's a, it's a precarious game to, to play. I see practices approaching myself or, or yourself and your organization for help because they feel like maybe things are a little bit slow sometimes in terms of new business because they've got a little bit of space in their schedule uh, and they're not quite accustomed to that and they see that as a problem and they go, oh no, this isn't good. I'm not fully occupied, but I know you probably experienced the same thing, but I personally go, oh, you, I feel like you've actually got just the right amount of space. This is what it's actually supposed to look like. You didn't choose mm-hmm. this, but the fact that you have one day a week where you're not flat out working on stuff for clients that's great. That's exactly where you want to be, right? It's And then it's only a matter of time until they get too busy. And I'm like, oh, I wish they were back to being quiet again. That was so nice. We were having such good conversations well, and they were working on all these new marketing projects. And, uh, you know, I get nostalgic. That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's really interesting as well. Because one thing that we often talk about with our clients is designing the ideal week and this concept of protecting white space and like we have our own sort of philosophy towards productivity and one of the dictums i'll often talk about is the analogy of your business isn't a marathon it's a series of sprints and the marathon kind of mentality this is what we've been brought up with in architecture school you slog it out you work long nights you put in the hours you make sure that you're plodding along that every hour is is filled up but actually that's pretty exhausting in business because it's kind of never ending and, and goes on rather than actually the healthy way of the business is protecting downtime because downtime is actually one of the best foundations for being productive because your quality of thought is improved when you've had rest, you've had space to nurture yourself. You want that kind of healthy space inside of the business. And then there are sprints. There are times where, yeah, you might have to stay up a little bit late on a, on a project, right? There are going to be times where it's just like, we're going to be really focusing and putting a lot of energy in here, but it's controlled. So protecting and designing a business which retains that space that you're talking about, I think is really important because we want that time to be able to get altitude 
on the business. It's very interesting if you've ever watched some of the interviews with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. And Bill Gates will often talk about one of the first things that he learned from Warren Buffett. And he says, well, I used to have my diary planned out every five minutes. So he'd have a day and every, the day was broken down into five minute blocks, about different tasks, different chunks. And he said, when I met Warren Buffett, he only ever had one or two meetings scheduled for the whole week. And Warren Buffett pulls out his diary and is like an old handwritten diary and it's just empty. And he was like, the most important thing is just protecting your downtime, protecting space. And that's a very different approach, right? But, yeah. and, and of course, it's like, oh, well, he's a billionaire and they can afford to take that kind of time off. But we want to be having an element of that in our own businesses. Because again, that altitude of being able to see where you're going and giving, you're giving yourself space so that you can bring a high quality level of thinking to your highest value tasks, marketing, strategy, vision, means that you're going to get better quality of decisions, which means that the overall direction and route is going to be more more effective and it will make a, an impact to the everyday quality of what you're up to. Yeah, that productivity aspect of things and protecting time is something that I'm often working on with clients. Um, every practice I start working with, one of the first questions I'll ask is how much time should we be spending on marketing? And I could say two hours a week or 20 hours a week. It wouldn't matter because it'll just <laughs> depend on how busy they are. I mean, demanding clients, demanding staff, urgent deadlines, the builders calling you saying there's a problem, any manner of issues will come up and they're going to always take precedence over Dave's marketing to-do list of set up your MailChimp mm -hmm. campaign or organize your next photo shoot. That stuff can wait, right? So mm -hmm. trying to shift over to that thing of, well, even if you just block out every Wednesday from nine to 10, and that's your marketing time. And let's start there and see how you go with that and then go from there. And it's a completely different approach to how you're normally working in practice. But I think it's one of the ways to at least try to get into a more disciplined routine around some of this stuff. I wonder if there's yeah. anything else. I mean, is it just dropping stuff on the calendar? I guess everyone's going to find their own strategies, aren't they, that are going to work best for them. But is there anything else that's come up for you where you've seen that some somebody be able to develop maybe a practice or a ritual that they can stick to, whether it's for marketing time or Wait, other areas? I think this is where the mindset's important because if you can unpick the mindset and the unhealthy mindsets and beliefs that you have around marketing and sales, like a fear of rejection or, and, and this is the thing because people don't think that they have this as a problem because it's under the surface. This is the interesting thing about mindset. Uh, no one ever comes to us and says, I've got a mindset issue, ever. No one. And you talk to people and they, no one believes they've got a mindset problem. Of course you don't, right? That's why it's so difficult to identify. And I go through quite a long process with our clients to, I want them to fall in love with marketing. I want them to fall in love with sales and to see it not as a superficial attention grabbing activity but if we broaden you know our perspective and look underneath the surface of what marketing and sales is which is communication and it's a communication that's allowing you to help somebody else that's already a much more empowering way to approach it and when it's about making connection and developing a relationship and figuring out how best that you can solve somebody's problem and help them fulfill on what their goals are. Again, this becomes much more fulfilling and it actually becomes, dare I say, enjoyable. And if we can get to the, to the point where marketing is enjoyable and fun, and even though you can develop a bit of a love and passion for it, it finds its way into your calendar. It becomes a place where actually marketing is now an extension of my design practice. This is a, a part where I, there's actually value in me thinking about marketing strategically because it's impacting the way that I think about a project. It's actually an extension of that design thinking and creativity. And, that, and it's also developing and nurturing a, a relationship with somebody and, and a client that I care about and, or, or a community that I care about and I want to be I want to be impacting, right? It's not as it's not superficial me. I need to win work, get money in the bank. Some of the results of it is getting money in the bank, but having a much more kind of rooted 
mindset and approach to it means that it will find its way into our calendar. And of course, as well, obviously, working with consultants like like yourself and having somebody who's constantly prodding and poking and saying, did you do your 90 minutes of, of this? Did you do that? And again, coming back to the strategic vision and the mission of the business, if you've done the work there and are developing a, a mission and a vision that is deeply compelling to you, that kind of lights you up on the inside, that 90 minutes becomes sacred time. You tell the rest of the team, you communicate it, time gets protected, really. Yeah, absolutely. I think also so much of marketing improvement is often around just doing a better job of sharing the work that you're doing. It's choosing a better photographer and investing properly in that, getting some good writing together to describe the project, making sure you've got a website that's easy to use. So I find that when they start to think about it that way in terms of sharing their work well and making a lasting investment in something that they've been working on for years and how they put that Mm -hmm. out into the world and doing that with quality and professionalism and effectiveness as well, making sure that it doesn't end up just falling flat and nobody ever finding out about it. It starts to kind of maybe click and make a lot more sense. And I think just even just listening to you talking about it makes me think about how do you not see marketing as just greediness, as (laughs) wanting to be the star, wanting attention, like some of those sort of negative kind of connotations that can come with it so often. Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. As you say, it's this extension of sharing your work. It's the extension of the design process. You want to be able to do that clearly and coherently. And and architects are, are naturally good at doing that as well. And there's a lot of there's a lot of reward and, and joy that comes from being able to share your work in a professional manner. And if you're passionate about that and you get strategic about it, then there's nothing wrong with you approaching a journalist or hiring a, a PR or putting yourself forward for uh, a, an, an award or for making your own uh, film about yourself, for example, and kind of just enjoying that process of sharing and making content and, and kind of going about and, and just sharing what it is that you do in a, in a healthy manner. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of the people that you've had on your podcast have strong personal brands and they're putting their public persona out there. They're for, they're they're out there speaking for themselves. And I guess personal brand can start to cross maybe that line of are we showing off or what or what role does that play? It still feels like it's pretty important for somebody to get out there and be the face of their business, particularly in those early years. I'd just be interested maybe mm-hmm. to get your thoughts briefly on personal brand and is it a viable component because we were just talking about stuff being about the work but I'm now I'm thinking sort of what about the person and and themselves as that ambassador for their brand yeah I I think it's incredibly important for you to be perceived as a thought leader in a particular domain and for you to start developing a relationship where people have people develop a relationship with you quicker than they will do with a picture of your work right they'll be able to have an emotional connection with you. They'll be able to understand you. They'll be able to develop trust with you as an expert. So someone kind of starts watching videos of you. I mean, video, just video footage, it's got so much bang for its buck. You're just picking up a camera and speaking into camera and you don't even have to be particularly good at it. You just have to be consistent with it. And people are seeing your face all the time. Oh, there's that guy who's chatting about buildings again or he's chatting about that kind of stuff. And eventually I need some of that. It's such an effective way of building a relationship and can be a very easy thing to to scale at. And I, I think it's incredibly important to develop personal brand and your company is people. Your company is an organization of conversations that are happening. We want to be able to see where that conversation is being generated from. Who's the leader, if you like. I think it's in many ways, it's easier to develop your own individual voice than it is a voice for a company, which is a kind of much more complex thing. So take advantage of that. There's no reason why your company can't have multiple voices. Like I was chatting to, I've chatted to a number of large architect practices as they go through their succession plan, they'll often have individual PR campaigns for the new partners that are involved. And they'll be looking to develop these different voices within a practice, which moves away from the the figurehead or the star architect who begins to diminish in terms of their public appearances, if you like, but that needs to be replaced with other figures. So it's important to give the new 
practice partners their own platforms and develop their own flavors and then that becomes more rich and nuanced and now you've got a team rather than a kind of figurehead so there's you start to see that evolving so if you've got a practice and it doesn't just need to be you that can be talking there's opportunity to have a little bit of flavor from everybody giving value and talking and developing their own kind of personal brands within side of the inside of the company i think people communicating talking to camera it's cheap it's easy it's fast you get so much bang for your buck you don't have to wait 2 years for a project to be completed if it's there as a resource use it right and then when you've got that in conjunction with stunning images of your work and this the the pictures of your work this is the stuff that can get you published into magazines and to elevate your audience great those somebody can be looking through a magazine they see your practice name they do a quick google search or whatever and boom now they're now they've just dropped into the ecosystem of your company and they're developing relationships with individuals because they're watching video content and you're not doing anything it's all kind of happening for you. Yeah. I love that idea of creating content with lots of other individuals in the practice as well. There are some great big firms in Australia that have got their own podcasts now where they, they'll have somebody in usually in comms or research or something who is the regular recurring host of the show, but they will go around and go, you know, we have the number one person in the country on airports that works here. Let's go make an episode with them about airports. And it's just this way of extracting all this knowledge and expertise yeah. out of the team. And it is a bit like drawing blood from a rock when it comes to architects. Like they don't want to get on the microphone. They don't want to be on camera that much. But if you create the right setting and get that conversation and have somebody who knows what they're mm-hmm. doing leading that, I think it can be just really interesting. Well, and, and, and- and again, I think for practices to encourage people to get up and speak and to talk, and it doesn't take much in terms of a little bit of training to get quasi-competent of of doing public speaking. And the amount of just freedom that, that can release in even the most introverted of people, there's plenty of introverted actors and performers out there, plenty. Yeah. Right? That's not a reason to not want to be able to express or get in front of camera can be a little bit of an uncomfortable process to begin with certainly if you've got people in your office who have a personality or a natural desire to do that identify them make use of it capitalize on that but a little bit of a little bit of public speaking training or having that as part of a culture in the office becomes massively empowering for people and and is is a great marketing resource and as you say some of these practices you've just got so much expertise in a business like my goodness share it tell us about it we want to see it it's fascinating and the other other thing i think is i always like the idea of i'd love to see architect practices doing a behind the scenes documentary style thing of inside of an architect practice but i've got i've got an idea for a netflix um series that i want to do is like the secret lives of architects and i'm going to go and you know travel the word and and spend like a few months in different architecture practices and kind of create the behind the scenes but that kind of idea if you like of having a continual documentation of what's going on in the office it doesn't even need to be like loads of two camera contrived stuff but it's interesting it's interesting for people who are not architects to get a little bit of flavor of the the reality of what's happening I agree. Ryan, amazing ideas. We've reached the end of our allotted time for this episode. I feel like we could probably go for like another hour and a half at least. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much, so much helpful advice and perspective on all this stuff. I really appreciate it, mate. My pleasure, Dave. Thank you so much for having me. I thoroughly enjoy speaking with you and your thoughtful questions. That was my conversation with Ryan Willard from Business of Architecture UK. If you'd like to learn more about Ryan and his work, you can visit businessofarchitecture.com, follow Business of Architecture UK on Instagram, or subscribe to the Business of Architecture UK podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.